Thank you very much indeed, Hermione, for that delightful introduction. It's a huge pleasure to be back uh, in Oxford uh, and not to have been prevented from returning by volcanoes. It's also a pleasure to have a microphone, uh, and I'll be extremely careful what I say <laughs> with this microphone on my tie, as all Scotsmen should be. I want to uh, take advantage of the fact uh, that I'm opening this series by offering some reflections not only on the relationship between war and finance, or finance, as my friends at Harvard prefer to say, but also on the relationship between war and civilization, which is the overarching theme of this series. It's rather intimidating because as I look around, I see some very distinguished historians indeed who know a great deal more than I do about this very subject. Uh, but the one who's really uh, making me nervous is the youngest historian uh, in the auditorium, my daughter Freya, who I think has never had a, a lecture by her father inflicted on her other than informally on the subject of pocket money and mobile phones. It was actually of her younger brother, Lachlan, um, and his big brother, Felix, that I, I began uh, by thinking as I tried to devise what to say to you. It struck me as I was reading a poem that Lachlan, at the age of 10, had written. Uh, he's at the Dragon School just around the corner. That we have, as a society, become very ambivalent about war, and particularly about the relationship between war and our civilization. Uh, the poem that he showed me uh, was clearly inspired by the war poetry of the First World War uh, and uh, the Wilfred Owen variety. Uh, it was rather a touching and moving evocation of the horrors of war and an impressive leap of the imagination uh, by a ten-year-old boy. It evoked the terrors of a gas attack uh, and I couldn't help but remind him of the fact that his great-grandfather had experienced such a gas attack in the Ypres salient as a private soldier in the Argyll and Sutherland Highlanders. But then, later on, having read the poem, I saw the self-same Lachlan playing what appeared to be an astonishingly violent video game. I asked him what it was, and he said cheerfully, Oh, it's Nazi zombies. And I watched him play Nazi zombies for as long as I could bear. It's really one of the most bloodthirsty things I've ever seen on a screen. So clearly he was as able to mimic the style of Wilfred Owen for his teacher's benefit as he, as he was to enjoy the pleasure of slaughtering Nazi zombies uh, by the hundred. I want to talk about ambivalence at a more general level level. Our ambivalence as a society, you will have read about, perhaps even witnessed, uh, the regular spontaneous demonstrations of public sympathy and bereavement uh, when dead British service personnel uh, arrive at RAF Lynham and are transported through Wooten Bassett uh, to the John Radcliffe Hospital. Since the summer of 2007, the people of Wooten Bassett have lined the streets each time a hearse has passed through uh, 
with somebody killed in action or at least uh, in the Iraq or Afghan theatres. I read a report about one of these occasions. I think it was the time the 100th uh, casualty was driven through the town. Somebody was asked, should the Prime Minister attend? This was before Bigot Gate. It would be like having your son knocked down by a car, replied a man, and then inviting the driver to the funeral. Uh, A mother who had lost her son commented, I hate Tony Blair. It's his fault we're in this mess. According to the most recent opinion poll that I could find, just published in The Independent the other day, 72% of British voters regard the war in Afghanistan as unwinnable, and 53%, slightly more than half, say they don't really understand why Britain is still there. Now, let us reflect for a moment, dispassionately, uh, about the scale of this conflict and the conflict that Britain was previously involved in, in Iraq. I do this uh, not in any way to cast aspersions on those who have lost their lives in these conflicts, uh, nor in any way to diminish the grief uh, of their parents and other loved ones. Anyone who becomes a mother or father understands instinctively there can be nothing worse than to lose a child. And it's especially dreadful to imagine that child dying in conditions of organised violence as a result of of malice. Nevertheless, the fact remains that 460 British servicemen and women have died since the invasion of Iraq in the two major campaigns of what's been called the War on Terror. 460. And even at the upper limit... The cost of our involvement as a country in these wars cannot exceed £20 billion. And that is the most uh, inflated estimate which Joe Stiglitz and his co-author came up with when they were trying to cost the the war on terror uh, for the United States too. I think it's an overestimate. I want you to compare those figures with the number of people who have died in road accidents in the same time period in this country, which is somewhere in the region of 21,500. And with the cost of the bailout of the banks uh, that began in 2007-2008 with the onset of the global financial crisis, Uh, the official estimate, and this is certainly too low, for the cost of the bailout to British taxpayers is £850 billion. I don't think you need me to do any more arithmetic uh, to show that there's a great disproportion between these different costs. War may be unpopular. This war in Afghanistan clearly is unpopular in the United Kingdom. But that doesn't alter the fact that it's a very small war by historical standards. It would barely have counted as a skirmish in the long sweep of British imperial history. I want to offer you two opposing views of the relationship between war 
and civilization. Uh, there is a very large literature on this subject, and in order not to bore Freya, I'm going to simplify it uh, enormously. And I'm going to take two recent authors uh, and make them responsible for the two opposing views. But as you'll see when I outline them, these views go back a very long way indeed. One view, which I think is probably shared by most people in Wooten Bassett, is that there is an inverse relationship between war and civilization. Uh, and that the more war there is, the less civilization you're likely to have. My colleague at Harvard, Stephen Pinker, is working on a new book uh, on the psychology of human violence. Uh, but he's already published some reflections on this. And I'm going to quote uh, from one recent article. History, writes Stephen, has long shown that in many ways we have been getting kinder and gentler. The decline of violence is a fractal phenomenon, visible at the scale of millennia, centuries, decades, and years. And the leading edge has been in Western societies. I did a terrific argument with him about this over dinner just a few weeks ago, and it suddenly struck me that he'd given me the theme for my lecture. Now, this view goes back a very long way indeed, back indeed to the Enlightenment, if not uh, further, there are some wonderful books that I remember reading as an undergraduate, uh, John Neff's uh, book, uh, War and Human Progress. Uh, and Jim Sheehan, the Stanford historian, recently published a book in much the same vein, entitled Where Have All the Soldiers Gone?, uh, documenting the dramatic demilitarization of Europe that has occurred since 1945, bringing to an end a period when Europe was the most violent part of the world. Now, Empirically, the proposition that violence has tended to decline as a civilization has advanced is attractive. And Steve, being a good social scientist as well as a psychologist, has been accumulating uh, data on this subject for some years. Let me just show you one uh, of the many charts that one can uh, use to make this argument. This chart shows you death rates from military conflicts in England going right back to the 12th century and coming up to the beginning of the 20th century. And what you can see is that uh, after the great peaks uh, of civil war, the Wars of the Roses, and then what used to be called the English Revolution or English Civil War, uh, there was a steep decline in the percentages, uh, the mortality percentages associated with war in England. And a very simple correlation would be that this decline uh, correlates closely with the increase in per capita income and the improvement of living standards. The chart, incidentally, is from a fascinating book by uh, another Scotsman and another economic historian, Greg Clark, uh, A Farewell to Alms, with an L, uh, that was published a couple of, of years ago. Let's call that the common sense view. I suspect if we put it to a vote, most people would be inclined to agree that a decline of organized violence, a decline of war, would tend to correlate uh, with the advance of civilization. Oh, and in parenthesis, uh, one of Oxford's greatest minds, Paul Collier, uh, the world's leading expert on economic development in Africa, 
has made a similar commonsensical argument about the role war plays in sub-Saharan Africa today in an excellent recent book, the sequel to The Bottom Billion, that he published a couple of years ago. Now let me offer the non-commonsensical historian's view, which is quite the contrary. Namely, that there is a positive relationship between war and the advance of civilization. War, in fact, is conducive uh, to the advance of civilization. If by civilization we mean increasingly complex, organized societies uh, with a rising share of population living in cities and a rising share uh, of income, a rising level, rather, of income. You can go all the way back to the German sociologist Werner Sombart if you want uh, to trace the origins of this view. Uh, in his War and Capitalism, published in 1913, Zombart made the argument that this was, in fact, the driver of the Industrial Revolution, a kind of variation on Max Weber's earlier argument uh, that it was Protestantism, the Reformation, that had sown the seeds uh, of the Protestant ethic and the spirit of capitalism. My favorite formulation comes from this gentleman here, Charles Tilley, uh, at Columbia University, who pithily said in one of his books published in 92, war made the state and the state made war. The argument that I want uh, to explore with you this evening is that fighting wars, organizing violence, was one of the drivers of institutional and other forms of progress in the Western world. And we must therefore pause before we conclude that war is always inimical to civilization and other kinds of social progress. Philip Bobbitt uh, wrote a wonderful book, uh, The Shield of Achilles, which explored in great detail the interrelationship between the fighting of wars and the evolution of states, including the evolution of their legal systems. And this, I think, is another book in this vein. And I should say that I thought, when I began to write this lecture, that I was on their page, that this was essentially what I think. But then I began to look back on my writing, all the way back to the time I was doing a DPhil at Magdalen here in Oxford on the subject of the German hyperinflation that followed from the First World War. And I realized that, in fact, I'm on both sides of this argument. In some books, uh, my first book, the one about hyperinflation, Paper and Iron, uh, then The Pity of War, the book about the First World War, uh, and most recently in a book about 20th century conflict, The War of the World, I emphasize the catastrophic uh, consequences of conflict, the huge disruptions that the 20th century world wars caused, not least in Central and Eastern Europe. And if you read those books, you will have very good reason uh, to question Steve Pinker's proposition that there has been a long-run and sustained decline in violence. On the contrary, you will come away aghast at the appalling violence inflicted on one another by supposedly civil so civilized societies between 1914 and 1945. On the other side, the body of work that has focused more on financial development is altogether more positive in what it says. 
the World's Banker, the history of the Rothschild Bank, essentially explored how wars led to the evolution of the international bond market. The cash nexus took that special study uh, on a single bank and generalized it to show that war was indeed, in Heraclitus's famous phrase, the father of all things, at least uh, all things financial. Empire, the book I wrote about uh, the British Empire, uh, also had this theme within it, that one of the things that made Britain able to run an empire that covered about a quarter of the world's land surface and ruled about that proportion of its population was precisely the superior financial institutions the British had developed over time uh, since the 17th century. And if you've read my most recent book, The Ascent of Money, the message is elaborated on there that financial institutions evolved primarily in response to war, and these financial institutions then had the positive benefit of accelerating or facilitating economic growth. How can we resolve this puzzle? Can I uh, resolve the contradiction that seems to lurk in my own writing? Well, the project that I'm currently grappling with which followed from a Harvard lecture course uh, last semester, is an attempt to rethink the big question of why the West came to dominate the rest after around 1500. You can argue about the date. It seems to me that the big story of modern history, the thing that historians should be most concerned to explain, is that great global imbalance that emerged after around 1500, in which a relatively small number of societies concentrated on the western end of Eurasia in Europe ended up dominating the much, much more populous societies uh, of Asia, besides other societies in other parts of the world as well. And this cartoon, a German cartoon, from the time of the suppression uh, of the Boxer Rising in around 1900, gets the point very well, uh, with the one exception of Japan that had westernized itself by the time of the Boxer Rising, it was a coalition of Western powers that violated Chinese sovereignty, uh, ransacked uh, the forbidden city in Beijing, and suppressed uh, the Boxer Rising on Chinese territory. This is a wonderful symbol for the dominance the West had achieved by the beginning of the 20th century. The story I've tried to tell my undergraduates at Harvard is that the world from around 1500, is essentially uh, a world in which the little guys win. Triumph of the small. Just look at these population figures to get a sense of the huge imbalance that I'm describing here. It's relatively small countries in Europe that end up running huge empires that directly or indirectly control the fates of the much more populous Asian uh, societies. Um, and this articulates itself in a huge unevenness in the distribution of income. The world becomes a really unfair place from around about the middle uh, of this last millennium. From 1800, you can see here, when the West accounts for 12% of the world's population and 27% of its income, we get to a situation by 1913 when it's 20% of the population and 51% of the income. The obvious question that poses itself is how far this great imbalance was the result of war, was the result of the successful application 
of military force. Is that how we should understand what Kenneth Pomerantz has called the Great Divergence that makes people in the West, and particularly people in the colonies of settlement in the Americas, so much richer than people in the East in the uh, imperial possessions that were not heavily settled uh, by Europeans. Now, here's another way of thinking about the inequality or imbalance I'm describing. I've categorized the world uh, in 1913 uh, as a world of motherlands, empires, and possessions. The motherlands are the the core of the empires I'm talking about, uh, and the possessions are the various colonies. You can see that in terms of territory, it's a hugely unbalanced world, where the motherlands account for just 10% of world land surface, and the possessions account for nearly half. It's also an unbalanced world in terms of population, with the motherlands accounting for about 26, a quarter of the world's population, and the possessions nearly a third. But when you get to gross domestic product, which is just a measure of the annual output of an economy, the imbalance is really amazing. The motherlands account for 61% of GDP, the possessions for less than a fifth. Let me repeat Explaining this is the most challenging thing that any historian has to do. Because you would not have put money on this outcome if you'd taken a tour around the world in 1500. Because in 1500, Beijing looked an incredibly impressive, large and pretty clean city with phenomenal architecture. And London was a smelly little town with appalling public health and disastrously high uh, mortality rates as a result. What role did war play in the triumph of what used to be called, before it became politically incorrect, Western civilization? The literature that proposes a positive relationship, a positive nexus between war and the advance of civilization is very rich indeed. And we could discuss this under a number of different headings. Let me give you two examples. You can talk about this in terms of science. Uh, Because my mother is here and is a physicist, I cite this partly to please her. I make no apology for that. Here's a wonderful example of what the West got when it applied science to war. Accurate artillery. Until a man named Benjamin Robbins, who was a self-taught Newtonian mathematician and physicist, wrote The New Principles of Gunnery in 1742, nobody had any idea how to get a projectile to hit a target. They just guessed. The fascinating thing about Robbins' book is that it tells you how to do it, applying Newtonian principles and adjusting for wind resistance. He's a remarkable figure, not coincidentally a military engineer for the British East India Company, and I think one of the unsung heroes of the scientific revolution. This idea, as soon as it hit the printing press, spread throughout Europe. A German translation was ordered by Frederick the Great himself. Within a matter of years, it was a standard manual that all Prussian artillery officers had with them. Think of the implications. From this point onwards... The West had accurate artillery. The rest didn't. There was no Ottoman Turkish version of this manual. So this is part of the story, it seems to me, that we need to tell. 
I'm going shamelessly to turn to my other parent who's here, my father, a retired physician, uh, and remind him, though he hardly needs reminding, of the important role that war played in accelerating uh, the uh, path of medical science. I can cite numerous examples, but the thing that most impressed me when I started to read about this uh, was the great advances that were made in the First World War of all periods, a time we think of primarily in terms of slaughter and the suffering so brilliantly evoked by the poems young Lachlan's been reading at school. But we need to remember that the First World War was a fantastic laboratory for experimental surgery. And a whole series of breakthroughs occurred between 1914 and 1918 that probably would have taken much, much longer to happen had there not been the slaughterhouse of the trenches in the Western Front. I give you just a few examples. The antiseptic irrigation of wounds, skin grafts, blood transfusions, and vaccinations, uh, particularly against typhoid. These were all innovations of the 1914-18 war. War drove physics. It also drove medicine. And these are the kinds of things historians have in mind when they argue that war, for all the suffering and bereavement that it inflicts, is an engine of the advance of civilization. But I don't know much about science. I'm the black sheep of the family. Uh, And I don't know much about medicine. I'm supposed to know about finance. And that's what I want to emphasize this evening. Because it is impossible to imagine the evolution of our modern Western system of finance, and particularly the evolution of its sound institutions, as opposed to the unsound ones that brought us to the brink of a depression, without war. Without war, you don't need a central bank. The Bank of England's invented to finance the national debt uh, of England. That's what it's for. Public finance. That's why it came into existence. The bond market, that extraordinary institution that allows first governments and then corporations to sell their debt in the form of interest-bearing securities, that would never have come into existence without warfare. It's an extraordinarily interesting thing that the ancient world did not have a bond market. It arose first in 12th century Venice, spread throughout all the city-states of northern Italy, because, of course, a financial arms race quickly began, and then hopped across Europe uh, to the Netherlands, across the Channel to England, across the Atlantic to the United States. This huge institution has been much underrated uh, by historians. And I will continue to bang on about the importance of the bond market until finally my colleagues start acknowledging it in their books too. There would never have been the concept of a stock market had it not been for the extraordinary experiment of the early 17th century that produced the two East India companies, the Dutch and the British. These monopoly trading companies were in fact designed to solve a problem of public finance, to convert bond and other forms of debt into equity. That's what these companies uh, were designed to do. And the moment you had a joint stock company whose ownership could be traded in tiny little slices called shares, you'd invented the stock market. Would it have happened without the pressure on the Dutch to finance their ongoing conflict with their former Habsburg masters? I doubt it. Insurance 
Do you know that the British are the most insured people in the world? It's rather remarkable considering how safe life in Britain is compared with life almost anywhere else. One reason that we like insurance so much is that we pioneered it. And the reason we pioneered it was that we had so much shipping coming in and out of relatively dangerous waters with our trade. Insurance was the product of naval conflict, first and foremost, long before the great Scottish widow's pension fund kicked off a new era of insurance and provision for old age, shipping insurance began the history of insurance. Globalisation itself, that phenomenon that we hear discussed so often, can't really be understood other than as a function of imperial expansion. So, I want to suggest to you that in the area of finance, war was, for most of history, though not all of history, the driver of innovation. Let me show you some pictures to illustrate this point. This is what the first true central bank, the Amsterdam's Wissel Bank, looked like. You can still see uh, parts of it today if you go to the Netherlands. This is what the original uh, bond market, the Burs, uh, in Amsterdam looked like. A little bit like an Oxford college, don't you think? <laughs> Only much more profitable. This is what the earliest shares looked like. This is a share in the Dutch East India Company, uh, one of the earliest ever produced. And this is what you get if you have these magic institutions. If you have a central bank, a bond market, and a stock market, you have the resources to deploy navies and, indeed, armies larger than the competition. Larger than the competition that you encounter in Asia or in Africa, also larger than the competition you encounter in Europe against states that don't make the financial leap. And this is a key framework within which we need to understand the ascent of the West. Once these institutions had got to the Netherlands, and particularly once they had got to London, the sky was the limit. A big power equipped with a central bank, a bond market, and a stock market really could sweep all before it. And that's what happened. Once these institutions had crossed the channel in the Glorious Revolution in the late 17th century, the rest of 200 years or so of history was dominated by the expansion of England. Credit makes wars and makes peace. Raises armies, fits out navies, fights battles, besieges towns, and in a word, it is more justly called the sinews of war than the money itself. Credit makes the soldier fight without pay. The armies march without provisions. It is an impregnable fortification. It makes paper pass for money and fills the exchequer and the banks with as many millions as it pleases upon demand. Daniel Defoe got it. That man saw almost immediately the implications of the vast new system of public finance that Britain had imported from the Dutch. And here you see the military story in its rawest, simplest essentials. This chart shows you the total tonnage of big ships. And I've taken the period 1775 to 1815 as the decisive period. Uh, and you can see the way Britain forges ahead, inexorably ahead, uh, of the uh, European competition in this period. You can't have a navy that big without the institutions I'm talking about. The period 
of the Seven Years' War and the Napoleonic Wars, from the mid-18th century to 1815, was a period of a dramatic increase in the scale of military conflict. Napoleon's revolution and war consisted partly of just doing everything on a much bigger scale. Here's a fancy piece of information that I love to share with my American students. Uh, this looks at uh, the mortality in the big wars uh, of the period that I'm, I'm talking about here. And the most striking thing about this chart, I hope you'll uh, notice, is how small the American War of Independence was in terms of casualties compared with the French Revolutionary Wars and the Napoleonic Wars. Twenty times as many Frenchmen were killed for their revolution as were killed for the American Revolution. That has social, demographic, but actually also profound financial and political implications. If you want to answer the question, why did the French experiment with republicanism fail and the American experiment with republicanism succeed, the answer is this chart. If the United States had had to fight a war on the scale that revolutionary France had to fight, I doubt the Constitution would have held. There's a counterfactual to contemplate. The reason that Britain was able to fight and win the bigger of the two wars, it seems to me, is primarily fiscal. Uh, this is a chart based on Patrick O'Brien's work on the scale of British public finance, looking at total expenditure as a percentage of national income and military expenditure as a percentage of national income. And you can see that from 1685 until 1810, war was mainly what the British state did. Nearly all of government expenditure was military. The state did not, in fact, do much else. And, strikingly, those percentages are really high. You're talking about, in 1780, for example, something close to 17 or 18 percent of national income. That's a very large number indeed. These days we spend barely 2% of national income on defence. So the military financial complex, or perhaps more accurately, the maritime financial complex, is the institutional key to British power into the 19th century and beyond. Now, here's the key chart. If you're feeling sleepy in this sauna-like uh, lecture room, this is the moment to stick a sharp pin in your leg and pay attention. I'm also capable of cold-calling you if you really look sleepy, so be warned. I may start asking questions before you get a chance to. This chart shows you debt interest, that's the left-hand side axis, and debt as percentages of gross national product for Britain, 1688 to 1821. The period which established British hegemony decisively defeated the rivals for hegemony uh, in Europe, saw an explosion of public debt. If you just follow that blue line, it goes from nothing, because there was no public debt before the Glorious Revolution worth speaking about, worth speaking about to an amazing 270% of gross national product. Remember that number, 200 plus, call it 250 just to make it easy to remember. And you've got, of course, a very large proportion as a result of revenues going on debt interest. When you've got a debt that big, even if your financial system is keeping interest rates low, you are spending a lot of money paying the people who lent you the money, the people who bought the bonds. This is the essence of war finance. 
it's a transfer through the tax system of resources from taxpayers to bondholders. And when you're talking about, as you were uh, by the 1818 period, more than 10% of national income going in interest payments, that was a huge chunk of government revenue. In fact, more than half, significantly more than half, of all government revenue after the Battle of Waterloo and for years afterwards went on interest payments to a relatively small elite of people who had lent the money uh, to the British state. One reason this was possible, as this chart shows, and this is the most geeky part of the talk, so stay with me. One reason this was possible was that the institutions I've described kept the interest on the debt low. All this does is show you the interest the French were paying on their borrowings and the interest the British were paying on their borrowings from 1753 until 1815. And as you can see, throughout the period, except briefly when things were going very wrong in North America, the French paid significantly more. I can show you exactly how much more by just doing the subtraction sum to pr produce the spread. You can see here just how extraordinary wide the spread got, because that's a logarithmic scale. It's the only way you can get the French numbers in. The French Revolution caused a total explosion of borrowing costs because one of its consequences was hyperinflation. And you tend not to lend people uh, money if they print the money and reduce it to worthless paper. So, the key to understanding, if you're still with me, the success of Britain as an empire, as a great power, lies in its financial institutions because they allowed this vast 250% of GDP debt to be run up at affordable rates. The principal rival couldn't match it. And the simple explanation is that the French didn't have these institutions, thanks in no small part to a Scotsman named John Law, who had blown the entire French system up with the first true stock market bubble in 1719. That's another story. So, here's the history of Britain's national debt from the Glorious Revolution to the end of World War II. One huge mountain and the beginning of another. The big question is, how does a society cope with a debt burden that large? What do you do next when you've got public debt equal to two and a half times your annual income? And some of you, the ones who are paying close attention, not only to me but to current affairs, will begin to see where I am going with this. What happened in British history after 1815 can be summarized with the following highly stylized bullet points. I apologize for using PowerPoint. There was a wonderful story in the New York Times this week, which I urge you to read, about the devastating impact of PowerPoint on the U.S. military, uh, because now U.S. officers can't communicate other than using PowerPoint and, and, and can be seen with their laptops in foxholes trying to issue orders with bullet points. But I make no apology. Because in my experience, if I just stood here talking, I'd have lost about half of you by now. High debt burdens forced electoral reform. The unfairness of a system whereby a tiny number of people monopolized political power, owned the bonds, received all the tax revenues, was unsustainable. And by 1832, a change finally came. That diluted the representation of the bondholding elite, the elite that William Cobbett so detested which promoted a more progressive system of taxation, 
income tax was introduced in peacetime in 1842. Within a few years, again as a result of widened representation, Britain switched to free trade. The combination of free trade and low income tax saw a growth spurt in Britain that we associate with the Industrial Revolution. That growth spurt allowed the debt mountain to decline in relation to GDP. And that's the downward slope that you saw in the previous slide. It's not inflation. It's not default. It's Britain growing out of the debt, with increased tax revenues being used to pay off the debt in some years. That, in turn, allowed Britain to maintain an expanding, a rapidly expanding global empire and to wage and win two world wars without, until after 1945, significant inflation. There, British history, 1815 to 1945. One slide, seven bullet points. What are the implications for today? History over, time to think about the present, and offer some uh, shamelessly present-minded observations. I was educated to believe that historians should not talk about the present, that it was a tremendously uh, irresponsible thing to do, indulged in only by such mavericks as A.G.P. Taylor. I have come to realize that if historians do not reflect about the present and indeed the future, other people do it who shouldn't and know no history. We have a responsibility to offer some insights, not only from military history, but also from financial history. And that is what I propose to do with the remaining minutes before I open this to discussion. The fascinating thing about our predicament today is that you can have World War scale finance without the war. This is the trajectory of the United States federal debt going right the way back to 1940. We are heading back to the peak achieved in World War II of an excess of 100% of GDP debt. And we're going to get there really soon, in the next few years. And we're doing this, notice, at a time when we're fighting tiny wars, not world wars. That's because a financial crisis turns out to have comparable effects on public finance as a world war if you respond to the crisis with Keynesian measures of large-scale deficit finance and uh, fiscal stimulus. Take a look at this chart. It's really amazing because it tells you that according to the Congressional Budget Office of the United States, the U.S. federal government will never again run a balanced budget. Never. And in one scenario, the red line that they call the alternative fiscal scenario, that, that incidentally is the scenario that they think will happen if politicians behave the way they usually do in Washington. So this is the more realistic of the two projections. You end up with a debt-GDP uh, ratio over 700% by the 2080s. That's not going to happen. That's impossible. But what it tells you is that fiscal policy is on an unsustainable path. Now, you've all heard about the PIGS, I'm sure. Uh, This is the unfortunate acronym for Portugal, Ireland, Greece, and Spain. Some say it should be PIGS to get Italy in as well. The uh, Bank for International Settlements ran some pretty interesting numbers just the other day, which I'm going to share with you. For some strange reason, these numbers have not played a prominent part uh, in the election campaign in this country, and you'll see why that's surprising in just a second. Uh, so here are the pigs, and as you can see, between now and 2040, their debt-GDP ratios are going to explode 
unless there's a radical change of policy. Uh, Greece is, of course, the worst offender, and that's why Greece is currently in a death uh, spiral, unless it's bailed out tomorrow by the IMF. It goes up to 400%, four times GDP by 2040. Portugal, a little less than 300. Ireland, more than 300. Spain, precisely on 300. It won't be so bad if they make political reforms, particularly if they make reforms of their public pension system, but uh, don't hold your breath. It's highly unlikely that they will. Now, look at the United Kingdom and the United States, and you will see that my favourite headline that never was is the headline, Pigs Are Us. I wasn't allowed to use that in the Financial Times because Lionel Barber is fussy. But we are. The numbers for the United Kingdom are, in fact, the worst in the world. Uh, according to the Bank for International Settlements, our debt will hit 500% of GDP on present uh, policies by 2040. And the United States is only a little behind on 450%. Our fiscal position, ladies and gentlemen, is, in fact, worse than that of Greece. Think what that implies. Remember, we are achieving the consequences of a world war without the world war at the moment. We're having just the financial effects while we fight trivial conflicts on the periphery of the American empire. When you think about what this means, it means something quite scary. It means that soon interest payments on these huge debts will consume all the taxes that you pay. That's what this chart shows. It's projected interest payments as a fraction of gross domestic product. Now, you may be worried about your personal finances. I certainly am worried about mine. That's a permanent condition, though, with me because I'm Scottish. But you should really be worried about your public finances. Because here we see the United States arriving in 2040 at a situation in which all of projected tax revenues will be spent on interest payments. Imagine a situation in which all your income was going on mortgage payments. That's where we're heading. I'm going to conclude with some lessons of history. What do governments not do when they have debts of these magnitudes? I'll tell you. They reduce expenditures, or rather they don't reduce expenditures. This is what they don't do. What they don't do. Reduce tax rates to promote growth. Raise taxes and consumption to promote saving. And reduce deficits and then grow their way out from under the debt. This is what's not going to happen. And the reason I think it's not going to happen is that it's only happened once, and I told you the story. The only time in recorded history when a country has got out from underneath a debt burden in excess of 200% of GDP without either defaulting on the debt or inflating it away was Britain in the 19th century. There is no other example. Here's what usually happens in all the other cases. Central banks and other banks end up being coerced into buying the debt. Firms and citizens find they're not allowed to invest in other things, and particularly overseas. Commitments to politically weak groups are welched on, and bond investors end up with negative real interest rates. Inflation, in other words, is sprung like a trap on the unwary. And we know this is what happens because it is what happened after World War II. Annual returns for people who invested in government debt, say in World War II, were absolutely catastrophic in the decades that followed the war. I know what I'm talking about because my late lamented uh, grandmother 
and grandfather invested their savings in war bonds, and it was one of the worst investments of the entire 20th century. Inflation wiped out the real value of these investments. And the lesson of history is that that's what usually happens when debts get too big. Final point, what are the geopolitical consequences of world war-sized debt? One, that military spending is usually a casualty as the interest payments rise. Two, if you default on your external debt, and remember, half of the U.S. debt is in foreign hands, of which a large proportion is held by China. Finally, as we discovered after 1945, you lose your reserve currency status, and sterling ceases to be worth $4.86, and heads down to being worth just $1, coming soon. Here's what's happening in the United States today. The red line is defense spending. The blue line is debt service, both expressed as percentages of federal revenues. These lines will cross soon. And as they cross, the decline and fall of the American empire will proceed. That seems like a very obvious lesson to be learned from the relationship between finance and war. This is what our now discredited friends at Goldman Sachs think will happen. Even before the crisis, they forecast that the GDP of China would overtake that of the United States in 2027. And it seems to me that the financial crisis that we are currently in will bring that date only further forward. From here to here, that is how much can be achieved in just 110 years. This was my favorite cartoon of recent months. Chinese sub threatens the US Navy, and the submarine commander utters the immortal words, turn around or we sell all our T-bills. Ladies and gentlemen, the relationship between war and finance, as I've tried to show you, is not an uncomplicated one. It's not a simple case of war always leading to financial disaster. On the contrary, war led to financial innovations that created the great Western empires that have dominated the world over 500 years. But an important lesson of history is that at a certain point, if your debts become too large in relation to your income, regardless of whether you fought a war or just bailed out the Royal Bank of Scotland, your power will wane. Thank you very much.